president and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis, James Bullard. President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Pat Harker. And yet we're hundreds of basis points away from our target. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, alongside my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel. We tackle market trends each and every week on SiriusXM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, talking this half hour with James Osborne. He's a certified financial planner. Uh, he started his own firm, Basin Asset Management, uh, in late 2012. Uh, I met James online on, on Twitter uh, at Basin Asset, uh, B-A-S-O-N Asset. Uh, he's a great a great person to follow there. Uh, it really shows you that the power of, of the uh, the internet to connect people, really. And uh, James really has a very different way of constructing his advice. A lot of asset management firms charges you uh, a fees based on the total amount of money that you manage uh, for or that they manage for you. Uh, and James has a very different fee structure. I'm going to let James go through his background a little bit, how he came to his his firm. Uh, you know, this probably will get into you know a lot of our discussions on this show tend to be very, uh, you know, economic, markets-driven. We don't always get as many questions from, from callers, but uh, with with James, uh, you know, his background, we, I think it may be, you know, a, a time to just give our, our, our phone number here, 1-844-WARTON. That's 842, uh, 844-942-7866. If you want to call throughout the conversation, uh, I'd be, be happy to maybe take some calls here with James. Um, but James, give us some background about your firm at Basin Asset Management. Tell us about your background and, and why you, you found your firm. Uh, thanks, Jeremy. I founded my firm in 2012, and the the backstory behind that is before I had uh, launched the firm, I spent several years, I don't know, five, six, seven years, at uh, a fairly large traditional wealth management firm here in the Denver area. And um, I use the word traditional in, in every sense I can imagine, in that what we did, my understanding was very common for advisors who were working with, you know, average to high net worth clients. And we did a couple of things. Um, One was traditional asset management that you'd expect on the retail side. So we were picking mutual funds and separately managed accounts. And a big part of my responsibility at the firm was heading research and analysis on, on all these managers. So spent a lot of time uh, doing research and due diligence and sitting around a conference table with the rest of the investment committee discussing that process and how we made those selections. Um, and we also did very comprehensive financial planning, so retirement planning, college, we did tax planning, although we didn't prepare tax returns. And for all of these services and building portfolios and managing that money, um, we charged a 1% fee, which is you know very standard across the industry. And during my time there, especially towards the end of my time there, I eventually became uh, disillusioned with the idea of the 1% fee and the traditional portfolio management uh, practices. Uh, you know, a large part of um, leading research for the investment committee was I was always looking for a new manager to replace somebody who had been underperforming. And that pattern sort of stuck around for a very long time uh, indefinitely. And I don't think it's that we weren't 
uh, bright people on the investment committee, I think it's that it's extraordinarily difficult to number one uh, find in advance those managers who are going to outperform, and then number two convince yourself and your clients to stay invested with them through what can be excruciatingly long periods of underperformance. Um, and ultimately, you know, after seeing this cycle play out over and over again, where we recommend a manager to a client, uh, see that manager underperform, hear complaints from the client about that underperformance, uh, in that, or coming from our own in, internal process, uh, firing that manager and then looking for someone new and then repeating that over and over again, it seemed fairly clear to me that that was not an effective way to manage money, and in fact, was a fairly effective way to chase performance and end up sort of selling low and buying high from manager to manager. Um, and the second piece that that really uh, kind of stuck in me, and this is what you, know, you alluded to at the open, is that the, the 1% management fee appeared to be very lucrative for our firm, but not make a whole lot of sense if you broke it down to the services that we provided on a client-by-client basis. And, and essentially what it came down to is I couldn't imagine a world where we were doing some multiple amount of work for a client who had a larger than average portfolio. So if we had a client with a portfolio that was a half a million dollars and a client with a portfolio that was $2 million, you know, those clients by and large need the same services from us. They wanted to talk about retirement. When can they retire? How much can they spend? How do we turn this big pot of money into lifetime income? What's the most sustainable way to do that? What about college funding? What about charitable giving? What about transferring wealth to heirs? You know, all of these things were common questions regardless of the size of the client's portfolio. And we were going through the same process with the clients, um, you know, really irrespective of how much money they had saved throughout their career. Yeah. And go ahead. Sorry. No, I I mean, I loved, I loved uh, your background there. That was a great introduction talking about, I mean, when I look at your, your website, your sort of two, two tag words, smarter portfolio, sensible fees. uh, And so you're, I mean, you sort of touched on both of those. So the, the portfolio management, uh, so there's this, this human bias that we sort of get rid of these underperformers and maybe that's the right time we need to actually increase our, our weight to them just as they're underperforming. It's such a hard thing to do. As human yeah, good nature, luck doing that. yeah, <laughs> that's why you need to systematize a lot of things. But I liked your post. I mean, you do you do a lot of writing. I liked your post um, talking about in, in asset management. Here, you, you might see somebody sort of younger advisor do a Jeff Bezos type uh, discussion. Your your margin is my opportunity. That that the uh, a lot of these you know fee based um, you know that that you think this sort of flat fee structure is something that uh, should resonate more. Why why don't people do more of that? Um, well, advisors don't do it because, uh, well, for two reasons. Number one, if you're an existing established advisor, to transition a book of business from a 1% fee to a, you know, a flat fee structure or something like mine, um, it's, it's really difficult because to make it work, you're going you're gonna to have to do a couple things. You know, the, the average financial advisor's client base is, you know, not normally distributed. There's a handful of very large clients who pay a lot of revenue into the firm, and then a long tail of smaller clients, clients with less investable assets that they're being billed on, um, that 
that are in effect being subsidized by the larger clients. So to transfer to a flat fee arrangement from an established book of business, you essentially have to um, cut off the long tail of smaller clients who are you know, essentially not paying enough revenue in for the services that they're getting. And then you have to take a huge haircut on your gross margin from the big clients at the top. And, you know, if you're 55 and in this business and with an established uh, client base, there's just there's no way you're going to do that. I mean, there's just no incentive to do that. Um, and the same sort of thing happens with younger clients. You know, I, I talk to a, or younger advisors. I talk to a lot of young advisors. I probably get, on average, a couple of phone calls and emails a week out of the blue from, you know, some advisor under 40 who's uh, dissatisfied with his existing set up and thinking about doing something different and found me and wants to talk about the flat fee arrangement. And I think that, number well, I, I do think that more of this is going to happen, but I, I also think that there's this fear of lost revenue idea that's like, well, if I get in front of a prospective client with a million or $2 million, I mean, I'd be crazy to only charge them, you know, five grand, but the reality is, that's the only way that that person's going to get in front of that client with a million or $2 million. Um, And so there's this, I think there's a lot of fear of like, well, am I maximizing the revenue I can get from that client? And for me, that was just not how I, not how I did the calculus when, when I set things up. It was like, if I'm really going to provide, you know, comprehensive, but pretty standard service to clients regardless of the size of their portfolio, then I'm just going to charge a fee commensurate with that service. Um, and I, I think you're starting to see more of it. Um, and, you know, for a young advisor, when I launched the firm, I was 29, um, and it was a scratch start, so I had no existing client base. Um, and... For me, it came down to what's what's an attractive way to, number one, do this in an ethical way that I feel comfortable with, and number two, to differentiate, to try to build a book of business. Um, and, you know, to be able to set myself apart fee-wise was, was honestly pretty low-hanging fruit. Sure. Um, so let's talk about some of the things that you're doing. So we're talking with James Osborne of, of Basin Asset Management. He has a, a flat fee structure for his clients. It's very different than the, the percentage of, of, of assets under management uh, that a lot of firms charge. So let's talk about when clients come to you, what would you say is the most, uh, and, and maybe you could also tell me, you know, just for my, my interest level, is what is the most challenging thing for you to do where you don't feel like you have tools to do the job as well as you would like? Uh, but what would you say is, you know, what the services you think that are most valuable in terms of what you're what you're doing. And we usually do a lot of portfolio discussions on this, and I think we'll probably go in a different direction, in, in, and I'm sure in part of this conversation here. Yeah, I mean, I actually don't think the most valuable thing an advisor does, especially early in the relationship, is portfolio-related. I, I mean, when, when I talk to a, a new client or a prospective new client, I, they want to talk about financial independence. I mean, that's number one. It's, it's how do I get to where I want to go and not work until I'm 90? I mean, I think there's, there's sort of this idea running around in, in financial circles. It's like, oh, never retire, and people don't really want to retire. I got to tell you, people want to retire. The people, that I, the people that I talk to want to retire 
uh, I'm 33. I want to retire. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think, I think that's uh, kind of a weird session uh, planning. Do you have your backup? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and people, what people really want to know is, is that they're financially secure. Um, and so spend a lot of time talking about what that means. And that involves a balance sheet and cash flows and, you know, what are your current and future sources of income? How do you build wealth? How do you transfer that wealth into, um, you know, a sustainable amount of lifetime retirement income that can uh, be reliable and keep pace with inflation and all these things? Uh, I mean, so that's, I mean, that's the number one most common uh, thing that affects, you know, 90% of my clients. One of the things then, on, oh, oh, sorry. One of the things on your site, you talk about financial planning. Uh, one thing we don't talk, we, we don't really talk about on our show here. You know, we, a lot of markets, a lot of portfolio stuff. But talk about life insurance as, as something that you review with people. I mean, what, what would you say? Um, you know, as people think about insurance, life insurance, what's your what's your your directive there? Yeah, I mean, so first of all, I don't sell life insurance. I, I used to carry an insurance license and I don't anymore, but that doesn't mean that life insurance isn't an important part of a comprehensive plan. Uh, you know, if, if, I mean, let's use me as an example. Um, so I, I'm working, I'm this whole breadwinner in our family. My wife takes care of our two little girls. Um, and, you know, we have a lifetime of expenses in front of us from paying the mortgage and buying groceries to putting two kids through college and, and everything else. And, you know, if something were to happen to me, that would be pretty disruptive to, you know, my family's ability to continue to live life in some semblance of normalcy. Um, so I have a big-term life insurance policy. Um, and it's not terribly expensive, but it's sufficient to um, provide, you know, assets to provide that would then be able to provide income to cover their needs, um, you know, into the future. And, and my wife has life insurance too, because if something happens to her, my life is ridiculously disruptive, uh, not to mention my kids' lives. And, uh, you know, there would things, things that sure. would need to happen uh, that would cost money. And so, you know, most of the time uh, for, for the scenario I just described, uh, term life insurance is is the solution because this is a it's a temporary problem. You know the need to cover uh, a loss of income bridges from today until we are financially independent as a as a household as a family. Sure. Um, and when we become financially independent, then there's no you know there's no loss of of income there uh, that liability that we need to protect from. So. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of using simple tools to fix obvious problems and, and to cover obvious liabilities, and, and that's a pretty straightforward one. Sure. Um, what, talk about, um, you know, so one of the things that, you know, we're, get, we're getting close to the year end. Uh, a lot of people um, try to, you know, I think try to do this throughout the year, but this sort of tax loss harvesting as a concept. Uh, I know you, uh, one of your, your tweet, tweets this week was talking about one of the, the major uh, robo-advisors who talks about tax loss harvesting as their value-added service. Uh, and you had sort of a, a funny tweet back on that. I mean, talk about how you think about that and, and what... Uh, maybe what what was driving you a little crazy about what the uh, the robo advisor talks about yeah i mean i think tax loss harvesting is 
is valuable. So, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's there's value in use in doing that. Effectively, what you're trying to do is create a tax deferred environment inside a taxable environment. So, by taking losses, um, you know, you can then use those to offset gains that you may take in the future. And essentially, because you're you know reducing your cost basis as you do that. You're, you're just trying to push out the future liability of capital gains taxes um, as opposed to taking it sooner. And if you don't think that that's a good deal, then you can, you know, loan me 10 grand and I'll give it back to you five years from now interest-free. Like, I mean, everyone would everyone would take that opportunity. So that's that's really what we're doing. The, the problem that I had with uh, the assumption of, of said uh, unnamed robo-advisor is, how much value is is really coming out of this? I mean, there there was a number that essentially said that there that this practice added two percent a year to portfolio returns, which I mean that should send red flags up for everyone. I mean that's completely ludicrous. That assumes that you know number one that you're giving up two percent a year in returns to income taxes. You would have to have the world's most tax inefficient portfolio for that to be true. And even if you did, a lot of the tax inefficiency of a taxable portfolio is not necessarily capital gains. It's dividend income, it's ordinary income from investments, whether you own treasury bonds in a taxable account or real estate that pays an, an ordinary dividend. Um, and so, you know, to me, the issue that comes up is let's, let's try to be reasonable and realistic about what these things do and don't do. You know, I work with a lot of higher income and higher net worth clients. Um, I have never seen a scenario where uh, a client has every dollar in short-term capital gains that they could then offset with tax loss harvesting. And that's essentially what the what the assumptions behind this 2% number came to. So that, that means if, if you harvested $50,000 of capital losses, for the math to be true, you'd have to have $50,000 of short-term capital gains this year and next year and the year after that and the year after that. And that's just, I mean, that's a sure. calculator fantasy that I've never seen anything come close to. Now, you brought up in, in that discussion, you just brought up a sort of interesting point about where you have and what you hold different assets. And, uh, you know, another thing that is, is one of those more complex decisions that's not really just a simple answer, but I'm curious on your back, you know, what you would suggest for people is... You know, a lot of people get a, a 401k at work and you can do a Roth 401k or a regular 401k and then you got to decide what am I going to hold in these different uh, retirement income plannings. Uh, you just talked about different things like real estate and income and, and, and where you hold different assets. Uh, and then we also have, you know, potential new tax policies. We don't know what they're going to be next year, but, you know, we know they're changing. How, you know, what are you suggesting to advise, you know, your clients today? Uh, and obviously everybody's situation is different, but a standard set of guidelines you might give to people thinking about this 401k versus Roth 401k? Yeah, so um, that's, it's hard. Uh, and it's not, it's not very straightforward. But as a basic rule of thumb, here we go. Um, if you're young and under the 25% income tax bracket, Roth might make more sense. If you're closer to retirement and over the 25% income tax bracket, then deferral probably makes more sense, pre-tax deferral. Um, so, I mean, that's like, Rules of thumb are terrible, of course, and but there I just gave one. Uh, you know, and what something that I'm doing with clients a lot right now is looking at Roth conversions at year end. So you know, I have a handful of clients who might have an unusually low income tax year. 
And the question becomes, should we do a Roth deferral? To what extent? Into what tax bracket do we do that? And there's, there's a lot of assumptions that go into a calculation like that that um, can skew things one way or the other. And so what I try to focus on is low-hanging fruit. So if you're in a 15% income tax bracket this year and you're normally in a 28 or 33% income tax bracket, it's like, okay, that that probably makes sense to voluntarily pay some income taxes. When that delta gets smaller, you know, that's it's not as clear and, and the numbers start to start to really be influenced by what assumptions you're making and, and that can be, of course, pretty dangerous. Um, so, you know, there's there's a there's a lot of very personal stuff uh, about anyone's individual situation that goes into a lot of these decisions. And, you know, that's why I think it can be pretty dangerous to even throw down a broad rule of thumb like, well, anybody in a 25% income tax bracket or below should be doing Roth deferrals and Roth conversions and voluntarily paying a fair amount of income taxes now because, you know, certainly taxes are going to go up in the future. You know, that's something I hear a lot. It's like, well, you know, taxes have to go up because of the deficit or the national debt, and it's inevitable. And, you know, now here we are post-election looking at a world where it's, you know, it seems pretty reasonable that for some people, at least, uh, income taxes or certain pieces of the income tax code uh, may go down next year. Um, so, you know, anytime we approach something and someone has a high degree of certainty about it, I, I get a little nervous. So, so, James, we don't have much time left in our final two-minute countdown here. Um, you know, we haven't really talked about um, portfolios at all, but what, what would you say, key, as you're talking to clients, um, what would you say, you know, is your most common concern today uh, and, and what you feel like is the advice you're, you're giving people as you think about, you know, sort of final comments here? Two minutes left. Yeah, so, I mean, thankfully, I have pretty great clients, so I don't, I don't get too, too many you know, day-to-day concerns. You know, I think the... The most honest answer is people are most worried about whatever was in the news this morning. Um, and, you know, so when it, it was when it was Brexit, everybody was worried about Brexit. Uh, when it was, um, you know, the bird flu or the swine flu, everybody was worried about that. Uh, and, you know, when it was the election, everybody on both sides of the political spectrum was worried about that. And, you know, to that, all I have to say is, tomorrow we're going to have something new to worry about. And if we're being influenced on a day-to-day basis with portfolio decisions because of what the headline says or because of how somebody parsed Yellen's commentary or congressional testimony yesterday, uh, I mean, that is just a recipe for disaster. And people need, they need rules and systems and constraints to prevent themselves from, you know, trying to outguess or react uh, to, you know, whatever today's headline is. Yeah, I liked uh, one of your blogs, yeah, I quoted Charlie Ellis, being a human is a terrible characteristic for an investor that, uh, well, we knocked the robo-advisor for, uh, you know, his tax loss harvesting comment. Um, it, the, having the robo, not the human emotions, might be a, a very useful thing. That's one of those those services those robos might help. James Osborne, oh, episode... Basin Asset Management. Uh, follow James online on Twitter, his, his website, Basin Asset. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast. 